Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The race is on. And now we have five races in the history books. The big name drivers who changed teams in 2021 have had the chance to settle in to their new surroundings. But who are the hits and who are the misses? From Carlos Sainz, Sergio Perez, Fernando Alonso, Daniel Ricciardo and Sebastian Vettel. I'm Ed Straw and joining me to answer that question and more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, hello, Scott. We're still early in the season, aren't we? But it's, it's, been, a, it's been a fascinating little subplot this season, hasn't it? How difficult it's been for drivers to, to catch up from the, the relative lack of pre-season testing and get on top of the cars. We haven't seen something quite so extreme and consistent across the movers for for a very long time no exactly and it's always fun when you have new faces in new places to to see how they get on and as you say such a unique challenge this season with that reduction in pre-season testing that it that it did add uh an extra an extra layer uh and within that as well obviously the the guys who were moving around and found themselves in different places all had different circumstances couple of guys with huge career opportunities couple of guys with you know not punts but 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 moves that will define the next phase of their career and then obviously Alonso coming out of retirement I've but I've got a question to throw back at you which is for I don't you can't be eager-eared but careful careful listeners would have they spotted a clue in how you rate the drivers based on the order that you read them out because you've obviously prepared that list in advance, so is that a little hint at who you think has done the best and worst job? No, I don't. I don't think so. They're not quite ranked in the order I'd I'd pick them, but who knows? It could be a it could be a subconscious thing. It's not Let's all. come back at the end of the podcast, and we can see whether or not you've accidentally, you've sort of subconsciously ranked them as you've listed them. I think you're overestimating the fact that there's any rhyme or reason to the order and choice of any words I put down. Uh, in writing or speak, it's mostly just uh, just a random, uh, random set of words. But but Mark Hughes, um, someone who's much better at organising words in a coherent order than I am, it is, it is interesting this season, isn't it, that so many drivers have have struggled. And yeah, we're used to drivers taking a little bit of time to acclimatise. But I think actually the drivers and teams are slightly surprised just how much that testing limitation has carried over into the first part of the season. Yeah, two things going on there. I think one is that it was underappreciated just how different each each of these cars are to drive and the very different traits they each have. It was uh, largely assumed they were generally very similar and what worked worked in one would work in another. And that's clearly not the case. There's always differences between cars, obviously, but um, it's clear that between the two extremes, it's quite, quite a fundamental difference, um, which we can get into later on when we're talking about the specific drivers. And the other thing, of course, was the um, the lack of, pre-race testing to you know to round those edges off and to fill in those missing data banks it was just not there so with the one and a half days each so the the new guys really really were thrown in at the deep end and uh, there were still not strong swimmers by the time the season started 
yeah, it's made for a, a very interesting subplot across uh, some of these teams. Certainly added some intrigue to the to the season. So let's let's dive into looking at the drivers in details. As I said, it is early days in the season. It's theoretically, COVID permitting, another eighteen races left. So. These are very much provisional conclusions, early conclusions, and, and things will change as the season progresses. But it's fascinating to see how different drivers have, have settled in. Mark, should we start with Carlos Sainz? He scored 38 points, best finisher second. Decent start for his early outings for Ferrari. The general consensus tends to be that Sainz has had the smoothest transition of the five big movers. Would you agree with that? And if so, why? I would, yeah, I would agree with that. I think he's progressing beautifully. Um my hunch is that, but for Leclerc's accident on Monaco, he Carlos was going to be on pole and win the race. Um, which it's, I mean, it's not a given, but that that is my hunch for how that would have played out without Charles's accident. Which for race five is pretty impressive. As soon as the car was good, he was ready to go with it. Um, he, he is very adaptable. We know this, and it's something that Lando Norris actually mentioned in Monaco when he was being asked about Ricciardo's struggles. He said science is very good at improvising a way to drive even in a car he doesn't like. Um, so that, plus the Ferrari, which I think it's clear now is one of the sweetest handling cars on the grid in slow corners. Um, very agile, rotates beautifully well. Probably the nicest of all in that sort of corner. So he's been unlearning the very singular McLaren traits in a more conventional feeling car. And he's very good at improvising anyway, so I think that's that's given them the best um, adaptation of this group that we're talking about. Plus, they, they, they're loving him there, they really are. They, he's just assumed his place there seamlessly, and he's, he's worked hard at it, but he's also such a likeable personality while retaining that competitive edge. But that whole partnership is working. Let's, you know, the, 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 the driver partnership between them and the driver's relationship with the team. And I, I think you've got to say that... Um, Matteo Bonotto called this absolutely right. He's been criticised a lot for many things, but his, I think his reading on what was needed alongside Leclerc was absolutely spot on. When when Sainz was piecing together the, the last few races as a McLaren driver last year, some really excellent drives within that, I remember Bonotto said that it, you know, he didn't need and Ferrari didn't need any further evidence of Sainz's ability because they they didn't feel their decision needed to be vindicated because... They, they they backed him, but obviously that changes once he does start driving for Ferrari because the performances he puts in early on will reflect on the quality of Ferrari's decision. And I I completely agree with Mark. I think um I, th- I think Sainz has been excellent. And the big thing for me is what I hope that his start to the season has done is I really hope it's won over or is winning over the people who were still sort of a bit skeptical about Carlos because. I don't know why, but consecutive best of the rest championship finishes and earning that Ferrari contract just didn't seem enough to convince everybody that he was deserving of a seat at F1's top table. I don't know whether that's because he's, you know, he was passed or not passed between, but he he obviously fell out at, uh, at Red Bull and, and Renault for different reasons. Um, he'd only beaten Lando Norris at, at McLaren. He'd been humbled by Nico Hülkenberg. And there just seemed to be this, impression among some people that Sainz was a solid driver but nothing more he wasn't one of those special young guys I think since he'd stepped into F1 there have been more than a few flashes of what this guy is capable of and the only thing that's surprising me about the job he's doing at Ferrari is that he's doing it within the first five races that that's really impressive especially up against a guy like Leclerc 
The thing I really like about science is he's an intelligent driver and he really does learn from his experiences, which is why he's able to to keep improving. Actually, he's only really had one season in F1 that was a bit iffy, which was the, the full Renault season. But other than that, he's been impressive. People forget how well he stacked up against Max Verstappen in the early days at Toro Rosso as well. But I think science has a very good understanding of what you need to get on top of when you move teams. I think when he moved to Renault, it was a bit of a shock to him how difficult it is to switch teams. He took a very, very different approach to when he moved to McLaren, helped by the fact he did that over the winter rather than in season as he did when he switched from Toro Rosso to Renault. And I think he's taken the same kind of approach with with Ferrari. He's just rigorous, thorough, as well as being a, a driver with fundamentally good raw ability, which is why it's no surprise he's been able to do this. And of course, he knows what scale of challenge he's up against. One thing, Mark, I was just wondering, Science has had a reasonable amount of mileage in Ferraris. Obviously, they had uh, an older car. He was able to run around Fiorano. And even after the first few races, he was uh, he was turning out. How much do you think that's helped him? Because with the exception of Fernando Alonso, most of the others haven't had huge amounts of mileage. Perez had a bit of running in an old, older Red Bull. But do you think that's just helped him a little bit get on top of the processes? Is that an advantage over, say, your Ricardos and your Vettels who, who couldn't have any uh, any running in older cars? I'm sure that's a great help, um, and any mileage in any car is is going to help. But yeah, definitely that that too. And also, in in terms, we were talking earlier on about um, how how well he improvises and how quickly adapts. I I do wonder how much of that might be his regular running in a, a rally car on a on a you know on the rally stage that he has at home that him and his dad still blat up and down in in a WRC car. It's just a different discipline, and it's it's just you're keeping your skills sharp. And I just wonder, you know, that might have something to do with the the way he's able to adapt. I, I I've been I've been thinking. I I I mentioned this in what I said just now, but in terms of how seriously sort of signs deserves to be taken as a as a top F one driver, I think one of the things I think that's been shown over the first five races, not only is it only taken in five races to score that first podium with Ferrari. But I think anyone who thought he'd be shown up by Leclerc has to concede that that hasn't happened, even when Sainz is theoretically at his most vulnerable. Those early races, getting getting used to how, how it works. And also, anyone not convinced by what he did at McLaren should probably reappraise that in light of Norris comprehensively beating Daniel Ricciardo across the, the balance of the, the, the season so far. And I just think if you tally up the job Sainz has done, you know, he now has, I think he has almost four times as many points as Sebastian Vettel did at this point last year, five races. And he's only got two fewer points than Leclerc does after five races. Now, I know that Vettel obviously had a worse Ferrari at his disposal than Sainz does. But last year after five races, I checked and Leclerc scored 45 points because he had that blockbuster start to the 2020 season. So even in that shed of a Ferrari last year, it was capable of scoring big and, and Vettel got nowhere near that. So I don't think that comparison is completely invalid. And similarly, while the while the points situation with Sainz and Leclerc is perhaps a little flattering because Leclerc didn't even make the start in Monaco. So in one race, Sainz went from having, I think, 50% of his teammates' points after the first four races to 95% of Leclerc's points after five. But that was because Leclerc paid the price for his own error. Sainz didn't put it in the wall in qualifying and then ultimately rule himself out of the race. So I just think, I, I, I can't imagine, I, I know Carlos is the sort of person, he'll reflect on those five races and he'll just pick out a bunch of things that could have gone better. He was already doing that in Monaco where he said that 
finishing second was bittersweet. But he must reflect on those first five races and think that that couldn't have gone, that couldn't really have gone any better. I couldn't have asked for more pre-season. And I I, I think in that context, I, I do believe that Sainz has done the best in, job in terms of that initial adaptation. Yeah, obviously the only real area he's been a bit behind Leclerc has been in qualifying, but admittedly, he did manage to out-qualify him in Portugal when the conditions were very tricky and he didn't put it in the wall in uh, in Monaco. So I think actually this, I must admit, science has kind of done pretty much what I was what I was expecting him to do, to be completely honest, in that expected him to hit the ground running as far as you could, expected him to be a bit stronger relative to Leclerc than a lot of people reckoned. And I think he's showing his his class and his, and his merit, I think, which is uh, very encouraging. And ultimately, he knows that he's got to show a strong performance level from the off if he's to become what he wants to be in that scene, which is the, the de facto leader, when really he was kind of signed to be almost a de facto number two, should we say. Mattia Bonotto has, has not said he is, but everything he said reading between the lines indicates that. So I think science has done exactly what he needs to do, which is, yeah, no great surprise. Should we move on to Sergio Perez, Scott? He's actually the best place of the movers, fifth place in the championship. No podiums, but he's had a couple of fourths, a couple of fifths. How would you evaluate his start with Red Bull? Well, just picking up on what you said about signs at the end, um, he's probably done broadly what I expected him to do, which is be a bit underwhelming in qualifying, but actually race quite well on on Sundays. And it's just a bit of a... I don't I don't know if it's ironic, but it it is... Sort of, there's a bit of sort of tragic comedy about the fact that the the only time this year Perez has actually looked like he's done a really good job on Saturday, he's then completely stitched himself up on Sunday, which was the Imola where he qualified on the front row and didn't score any points. So, um, I, I think I think his start to Red Bull has been difficult. I think it's clear that he's in a process of um, of adaptation to what the car requires, but I think crucially compared to certainly Pierre Gasly I don't really know if it was this is true of Alex Albon but definitely Gasly there is this there is this sort of message coming from the Red Bull camp that Perez is entirely focused on acknowledging that it's him who needs to change he needs to adjust the, himself to the car whereas I think Gasly in the first part of 2019 spent an awful lot of time just trying to move too far away from what the car itself needed because he was trying to make the car do things to suit him I think that Perez is uh, the concern I think for Perez is that there are a couple of times where he's looked a bit lost after qualifying when either he hasn't progressed through the session as he wanted or he just hasn't been able to 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 piece together what Verstappen's able to to piece together and the problem is that there have been a few key moments across these first five races where his difficulty on Saturday is hurting him too much on Sunday. So yes, he does a decent job to get back into respectable positions and finishing fourth in Monaco, given where he started, was uh, an obvious example of that. But it's still damage limitation. He should be in a position where he's supporting Verstappen win bids, but he isn't. He's, he's too far off. And Spain, I think, was the biggest example of that. So... There needs to be a quite significant step, I think, in qualifying for Perez to to really grab hold of this opportunity at Red Bull and make that seat his own. He's had 
a couple of promising ones. You mentioned Imola. Obviously, Portugal wasn't too bad either in terms of the deficit to Verstappen. Then Spain and Monaco, it's gone a little bit, little bit wrong. I think qualifying was always going to be his big battle, as you as you mentioned. But he does need to make sure he's a factor in that lead fight consistently. He's actually influenced things at the front less than Valtteri Bottas is, and that's the the kind of obvious comparison point. Yes, the fact that Max Verstappen's leading the championship and the fact that Red Bull are leading the constructors indirectly is is a positive for for Perez, but he, he's not quite done that. He did admit after Monaco that having said he'd probably need five race weekends to really get up to speed with the car, he's a little bit surprised that he's still struggling, but the thing I like about Perez is he's being he's being sensible. He's he reiterated in Monaco that he wasn't planning on deviating too far from what Verstappen's doing. He's very much channeling it all into improving himself, not blaming external factors. And I think that's probably the benefit of experience. He's been there and done that with a big team in McLaren before. Obviously, McLaren was slipping down the order when he joined, but there was still kind of a big team environment, shall we say. And he di- he didn't cover himself in glory with his approach there. Whereas I think at Red Bull. Now he's got that experience. He's learned what he needs to to do. So it's just a question of of how long that that process takes. Mark, there's definitely a little bit more to come from Perez. We know he's not the greatest qualifier on the grid, but he, he's capable of being better than what he's produced so far, isn't he? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. The problem with being that um, having that qualifying deficit, of course, is that it puts him among cars that are slower in the race, and that's why he can't support Verstappen, which is you know the situation that Albon was in last year. And that's that's happened on on a, a couple of occasions or three occasions this year for Perez. So yeah, he's he's getting he's not as far away from Max as um, Alex was, but he, he's still essentially in the same pattern. Um, so that's something he needs to break out of, and it is just a, th- a threshold thing. Just a tiny little bit of improvement in pace will get him ahead of those slower cars, and then he's he's good to go in the race because he's he's terrific in the race. He's Got a greater understanding of the tires. He knows exactly what he's got to do. It'll be it'll be like a light switch. But he does until he finds that uh, shortfall in qualifying pace. It just won't happen. So that that that's something he's got to do. And Baku coming up as where he's historically had a great. He's got a great record there. Um, so that would be a good a place as any to um, to start. So let let's see. I think he's desperate for a clean qualifying session because the last two haven't been. He's. I think he's. I think he's ended up basically a second slower than Verstappen, hasn't he? The last two qualifiers. Obviously, he was frustrated in Monaco. I think he just felt that he just seemed baffled after qualifying in 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 Monaco with the with just the the. He, I think he had basically the same problem Lewis Hamilton had, and that he didn't have any confidence in the car because he didn't have the temperature in the tires. But before that, in Spain. He obviously had that shot, that weird shoulder complaint in qualifying, and he had a spin as well, and. It, it was just a little bit messy. And, and actually, even going back before that, I know, Ed, you mentioned Portugal, was, the deficit wasn't that big there. It would have been if Max hadn't gone whatever it was, half a centimetre over the white line, he'd have been a half a second off again. And I think he's been, with the exception of Imola, where Verstappen made a mistake and probably should have been on pole by two or three tenths of a second. I think Bahrain, um, Portugal, Spain and Monaco, He's he's been between half a second and a second off of Verstappen. And I know that there are some mitigating circumstances within that, but that's a big deficit and that will definitely be bigger than I think even Perez was probably expecting early on. So that, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's... He, he's not in a sign situation, is he, where it's like, oh, he's pretty close to Leclerc, but there is a clear qualifying edge that Leclerc has. 
this is one, two steps removed from that for, for, for Perez. He needs to make a big jump just to even get in that. We, we, we always heard, didn't we, with Albon, that it was that, oh, two or three temps off of Verstappen. That's, you know, we're not asking a lot of you, but that's got to be your target. And Perez needs to basically halve his deficit probably to even get to that. And of course, Perez also has the added dimension that he's trying to earn himself an extended stay at Red Bull. This is his big chance with a top team. So the pressure's on, but I think we'll I think we'll see more from him. I think we will consistently see him later in the season qualifying where he where he needs to. And of course, the Red Bull's not the uh, not the easiest car to to get the the most out of. Although stress that's less that it's just designed for Verstappen and more just the the nature of the. Uh, the kind of balance of that car with the, the the strong front end, but I think I think Perez will uh, will get there. Mark Daniel Ricciardo, we've heard a lot about his difficulties in adapting to the driving style of the McLaren. Spain looked pretty good for him. Monaco went pretty disastrously. What exactly isn't clicking for him? Uh, essentially, driving with cornering and braking overlap, basically, and this is how Lando Norris loves to drive with very little steering input and the car just being skillfully rotated by manipulation of its weight transfer he's brilliant at driving like this and has been since his junior category days um it's always what stood out about his technique so it seems there that the mclaren has developed in this direction over the years and remember lando was there a year or so even before science even though they began racing there at the same time so science has since admitted to ricardo that yeah the mclaren's a little strange isn't it, it takes a bit of getting used to um science managed it ricardo's currently struggling with it so what is it? it? In theory, overlapping the braking into the corners is the fastest way. It's, it's th- that way you're exploiting the tyre's grip for longer and filling up the, any spare capacity. It, it's, it's a style that many of the great drivers in history use, Sterling Moss, Jim Clark, Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost, Michael Schumacher. They're all exponents of this technique. But it's not been something that the Pirelli tyre has liked, the Pirelli control tyre of the last few years. Um, everybody was saying as soon as they tried it, it does not like to be cornered and braked at the same time. But Lando's sort of tuned to this technique. He seems to have found a way of making it work, even with the Pirelli. Um, but it, it's it's not just a case of breaking into the corner and then coming off. It's it's way more subtle than that. So how how much do you brake uh, initially? For how long? How how progressive do you come off the pedal? Or how suddenly you 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 can't do it enough. If you if you don't do it enough, you just fail to get the rotation, and you need to put on more steering lock. Or if you do it for too long or too much, you just induce understeer. Your your brake and trace has got to be perfectly suited to what the tire is asking for, in that transient phase of the corner, and you need to be able to feel it. It's, it's got to be in the in the muscle memory, and Ricciardo hasn't got any. It, it's it's a it's a problem that'll be way worse in slow corners than fast because there's not much rotation to do in a fast corner bit. And you'll recall he looked fine in Barcelona but come to a slow corner track and he's nowhere which was what we saw at Monaco and he was saying it, it felt okay. Okay, I, I don't understand why he's a second off. And it's just that. It's just that you, you're not filling in the the gaps in the tyre's performance that is, that is there if you're not sufficiently overlapping the braking with the, with the cornering. In this specific car, the other cars aren't working the tyre in this, this way, so it, 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 they're quite conventional to drive. But it seems that the McLaren, and, and this has only sort of come to light since Sainz has left and Ricciardo has joined and it's given a fuller picture, it's, it's completed the pieces of the jigsaw. It seems that the McLaren has been developed in this direction and it's really working for Lando's style into slow corners. And um, 
Daniel's just not got a handle on it at all yet. I'm, so you, he's then in a difficult situation because he can say, okay, I need to get this car that we were talking about with um, uh, uh, the, the Red Bull situation before. I need to get this car in a place where I can drive it, where I can be more naturally my, myself. Or I need to adapt myself to the car as it is because it's working as it is. And at the minute, he's taken the latter approach, but um, I don't know. How how long does it take to uh, build up some new muscle memory? It, it's it's quite a... It can be quite a long, drawn-out process, so it might not even be something that he's naturally attuned to. So, yeah, he's in an interesting, a very difficult situation, I'd say, and I guess he's just got to keep plugging away at it and, and, and waiting for it to happen. Um, on, the corner, on the circuits that don't play such um, importance on the slow corners, he'll, he'll look better, and on, on the, the ones like uh, Monaco and... I guess the, the the middle section of Baku coming up, he's going to struggle. It is um, it is something I think he does just have to persevere with because do you remember in um, in Spain when uh, James Key was sort of explaining the sort of adaptation that Ricardo's going through, but from a technical perspective, and pointed out that um, which I think sort of complements what you were saying, Mark, and, and and maybe adds sort of an extra dimension to it is he was saying that with the change to the Pirelli tyres for this year, they've noticed that that braking trait on their car has got slightly worse in terms of what Ricardo wants to do. So if you've got a situation where maybe that wasn't the most compatible with what Ricardo wanted to do in the first place, and it's probably got a bit worse for the, uh, with that because of the 2021, that's a terrible, that's a terrible combination, isn't it? And you can see why it's so hard to get his head around. But it was just. It's just been painful, I think, at times to see like how how lost he is because, and and that is what I know some people and Ricardo sort of gone down that route as well will sort of take that to be evidence of well there must be something wrong with his machinery because if it feels okay and there's no obvious problem then why would there suddenly be this deficit? But that also that to me anyway. That is what indicates that it's a sort of it's a subconscious thing with, with with Daniel. If he can't consciously identify or acknowledge where that is, then that it's because it's not happening automatically. What he needs to do in that car isn't automatic. And if you have to think about it, you're gonna be you're gonna be struggling. Um and it goes back to what we've talked about on this podcast a couple of times over the last few weeks. This they keep, they keep referring to it in different ways, whether it's reprogramming him, recalibrating him, whatever. But it is a there is on some level there is a fundamental bit of rewiring going on, which is um, yeah not the work of a moment at all. And he's very conscious of the fact that you can put the effort into it and you can try and force yourself to adapt to that, but you can overdo it if you see what I mean. He he talked about after Monaco the need to give himself just a few days off just so he can kind of come back fresh again and and hopefully he'll have absorbed a little bit of of that but it, it is interesting the factors that have have contributed to it. I think you mentioned the Pirelli tires mark and actually the, this year the the modified construction they've got a slightly more understeering balance so to get that rotation I think you need to be a tiny bit more positive on on corner entry and I I almost get the impression very much reading between the lines from what Ricardo was saying after Monaco I think he feels that the the kind of corner entry approach Norris takes the way he loads up the car a little bit more aggressively and with the pace he he doesn't feel he doesn't quite compute how that all fits together and is possible because I think 
he feels that's a that's a style that that shouldn't work and should lead to going off. And I think that's where the the problem is in terms of not feeling the car can do it because because he literally doesn't feel he can do it. He he can't do it if you see what I mean. It's a little bit like to use a previous example. Remember with um, the active car, the Williams in 1992, and Mansell was great at just committing and knowing that the feedback he was being given at one moment didn't reflect what the car was going to be doing at a later point in the corner because the active ride would take care of it. But Tracy could never get to grips with that. He always had to respond to what the car was doing, and he never managed to dial himself out of that, whereas Mansell could commit to it. So that whole reprogramming question is is really, really interesting. But we do know Ricardo's very good. If you look at it with Renault, he struggled there initially. And people talk about the first few races, but even the first half of the season, he wasn't quite Ricardo of old. The second half of the year, he started to get really, really strong. So I think we may even be looking into the second half of the season before we see the sort of full Ricardo. That's probably where it's most likely to be. And of course, if it goes on longer than that, then that's a big concern for him. He made a point about the the Renault comparison that I thought sort of over oversimplified it in Monaco because he was saying that he'd had that difficult run of early races with Renault but then even in Monaco he did well and I think he was tying it in with this well I I know this track I love I love this track I'm good here and I still can't get it to work in the McLaren but I I might be misremembering it but I don't think his problem with the adaptation with the Renault was the same as he's got with the McLaren now so if it's a and if this is a problem that would 100% be emphasised in Monaco, as Mark was saying, you go to a track where there are fewer of these low-speed corners, he's going to look better. But you go to a Monaco <laughs> where it's like the worst possible track on the calendar for someone with his limitation at the moment in the car, then of course it's going to be worse. So that Renault comparison, I think, sort of, it was oversimplified, I think, over the Monaco weekend when Daniel was saying, well, it only took me a few races and then I got on top of it. I'm sort of leaning towards what you were saying, Ed, that actually that even that was a longer process. And I don't think he had, doesn't seem like he had the same fundamental issue to get on top of as he does in the McLaren. So yeah, I, I think we're looking at quite a few more races before Ricardo is really comfortable. And it's an interesting thing because people tend to look at it in very simple terms. It's like driver X is quicker than driver Y, but these cars are very esoteric. They have very specific demands. So it does take time to adapt it's never as simple as you jump in and you get an accurate accurate measure so I guess Mark the key question is we know it is the driver's job to adapt ultimately that that is the best drivers are capable of uh, of adapting so how long has Ricardo got to really to really get it together I don't think he can um, be finishing the season in in the the, the competitive state that he's in now um, that's that's uh, untenable so he's he's got to get it together. So yeah, I think we've got to be looking at a a strong second season relative to his teammate, and anything else is is uh, becomes difficult. Yeah, and of course we should note that Lando Norris is performing extremely well this year. He's become a much more consistent, uh, much more formidable driver this year. First two years were promising, but a little bit erratic. But he's been really really impressive this year. Shall we move on to Sebastian Vettel, Scott? Uh, personally, I thought his Monaco performance was very good. Netted in fifth place. Difficult year for Aston Martin, but encouraging signs from Vettel so far. Yeah, um, I think prior to Monaco, those signs were almost exclusively off track. <laughs> in Monaco, I think, added a, a very important, um, tangible breakthrough on track and in terms of performance. 
um, which then I think goes hand in hand with the stuff that we're seeing off track with him clearly settling into the team and, and looking quite happy. Um, still been, a, I've still been a little bit unconvinced by some of the stuff that, that, that Seb has done from, see, it, I give him a bit of a free pass for Bahrain, given how bad preseason testing was, but just because you're a bit unfamiliar with a car and a bit slow doesn't excuse the lack of racecraft he showed in Bahrain by wandering into Esteban Ocon. Um, and then it's sort of just been a little bit of a weird, almost sort of faltering start to the season, not necessarily because of because of him. He obviously had a bit of unreliability at Imola and then uh, he he didn't have the uh, the upgraded floor at the same time as as Lance Stroll in, in in Portugal and then Spain was just a flat weekend for the team and it almost looks on track like Monaco came out of nowhere in terms of that qualifying performance and an excellent race but you don't think it came out of nowhere do you Ed well i think there were hints before i wouldn't say the first four races were were brilliant by any stretch of the imagination but there were things like portugal qualifying for example was really really good uh, the car did regress to the mean in the race but i thought that that showed quite a positive sign imola wasn't too bad even though everything that could go wrong did go wrong so there were sort of little things you could look at i think yeah bahrain he had some bad luck in qualifying but hitting ock on that was extremely cat-handed and rubbish uh, and concerning but there are a few little positives and i thought the thing i really liked at monaco if you think of the old Vettel just nailing it at the key moments, and that's what he did at Monaco, he said after the race, basically your Monaco weekend, it's really about five minutes that decides it. And he nailed it properly in qualifying. He nailed it very, very well when he was executing the overcut. He closed up on the cars when he needed to. And I just, that's what I like to say. That's kind of the old Vettel uh, that we really saw in, in Monaco. So it'd be premature to say, yeah, he's definitely back for want of a be- better word. But there's an, enough positives there, and I think people have kind of assumed that just because it's all gone a bit wrong for Aston Martin, that that Vettel will be carried along with that. But he does seem, he does seem fairly happy. What, what do you make of Vettel, Mark? Have you got sort of enough? For, do, you, do you think I'm overstating the the encouraging signs, or, or or do you think he's made a good start? No, not at all. I think um, there was a step change in um, Monaco, and it was probably built upon the the building confidence, as you say, from Portimao onward. Um, and as well as the 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 cost, the other the other big point you talk about the big points. The other big point was going wheel to wheel with Gasly at the overcut, um, going up the hill. And it's interesting that just what fine margins there are because that was sort of you know two inches to spare. Um, if it had gone wrong and it had the, had the crash, it would have been oh, well. There's Vettel yet again, get, getting it wrong, going wheel to wheel, and and yet he got it very very right, and um, it was a terrific pass so i think that will only add to that confidence and the 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 progress he's making i don't think the aston is going to be as competitive as it was at monaco on other tracks but um you also all will have to gauge it on really the the quality of his race performances and how he's looking relative to stroll and qualifying but at monaco he was the quickest aston from you know as soon as the wheels started turning on Thursday, he was always he always had a, a good consistent margin over Stroll. So maybe maybe it is not a very good track for Stroll. We now go to a track that's a very good one for Stroll historically, and um, let's see how Seb gets on there. 
yeah, it's possible it will ebb and flow. But they're in an interesting part of the field because that car is what I call a Q3 marginal car. In that it'll sort of sneak through into Q3 on a good day when a few others have problems. And it is right on the edge of that points area. Generally, if you're getting points in it, you're doing a reasonably good job, depending on how many retirements, etc., happen ahead of you. So interesting to track that one. Now, the final of the drivers we're talking about, Mark, Fernando Alonso. Results on paper, he's he's been the worst of, the, of this group. A couple of points finishes, best of eighth in Portugal. But is he suffering the most, do you think, because he had the two years out of F1 on top of coming into a new team? I think it's debatable whether he's doing the worst job. I, I think maybe Ricciardo's problems have been even more striking. But yeah, he's not yet the Fernando Alonso he was, is he? He's um, I remember once when Ari Vatanen was trying to re-establish himself in long-distance rallying after his near-fatal accident in 85. He was recognised by a fan who said, uh, you're Harry Vatnan, aren't you? And he replied, no, I used to be, and I hope to be again someday. And it's a bit it's a bit like that for Alonso right now. He, he's he's just not putting the qualifying lap together. He's racing well enough, and uh, you know there's been a few races where he's there's been very little between him and Ocon, but he's just not putting it together over that one lap. It's not there. It's not, it's not, he's not churning it out on demand. It's very fine-honed stuff, but it, Ocon's operating at a good level and making that difference plain. Yeah, it's funny. In Monaco, Alonso did say after the race, said, well, I've been very strong all weekend. It's just in qualifying I wasn't, which you sort of thought, well, well great. <laughs> Do it the other way around. You might have a case. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult for him. It, it's always strange with Alonso because he's been very positive in this honeymoon period with the team. He, he's been talking things up. He was even cheerful after the Spanish Grand Prix went wrong and obviously tried that that one stopper, which he had to abort and ended up 17th or wherever he was. So yeah, it's it's really hard to tell with that team because they don't seem to have a great handle on the car. It seemed they'd had a bit of a breakthrough and they thought they were going to be strong in Monaco and then they weren't. It didn't have the front end. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to know what Alonso really makes of where that team's at. But Scott, obviously we have to give Alonso time as well to, to to adapt to it he had some power steering changes in Monaco that he said improved the the feel a, a little bit more and it again it doesn't feel like he's miles off or anything he's not totally dissimilar from the Perez situation I guess no he's not I, I was I was just thinking actually that Alonso's in the, the difficult thing is that Alonso is in a similar position to Perez in that the other three drivers have all got one over on uh their their teammates at, at some point. Obviously, <clears throat> Sainz versus Leclerc, the big one is Sainz's podium in Monaco. Even Ricardo, the, the 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 Spain weekend came together quite nicely and he, he beat Norris there. And even when he was struggling in those first few races, he was still banking good points. So he was sort of race crafting his way around his sort of fundamental pace limitation. And Vettel, after that, slightly shaky start and stroll nicking the odd points finish here he's obviously landed a a good result in that rivalry in Monaco but he'd already outqualified him by this point whereas Alonso hasn't had that and part of that is because Esteban Ocon's been doing a really good job of just a very very good job and really impressed with Esteban so far this season um and yeah I think there's an element of Alonso probably coming back from a from a lower base flip side of that if you've been extra if you've been hypercritical you'd say well actually Alonso had the best preparation of all these guys because he spent the second half of last year embedded in the team and driving old cars that's not the same as actually getting behind the wheel of the car you need to drive especially when the 21 Alpine is uh 
can be fickle is probably the polite way of uh, of putting it. So yeah, I think uh, I think Alonso's probably had um, slightly more of an uphill task than than the others. He, he's he's in a little bit of a vessel situation in the fact that he's he's largely limited by the fact that his team isn't having the best 2021 and he's ultimately going to be relying on his car being fundamentally improved because the likes of Sainz and Ricardo know that they've got better machinery. Obviously Perez does because the car that he's driving is Max Verstappen is using to lead the championship at the moment. So you've got three guys in this group of five who have cars that are going to allow them to shine more often than not. Whereas for guys like Vettel and Alonso, you're, you're kind of um, feeding off scraps a little bit. I think the good thing with Alonso is you can be confident he will get there. I don't buy those who suggest he's in some way past it. He's only 39. He's been actively competing in the two years he's been away from Formula One at a very high level. So he he knows what he's doing. He knows how to drive. And I think once he's adapted, he will do well, which actually you can say to a greater or lesser extent for, for all of these drivers. But I guess the really interesting question, Mark, is whether Alonso's really convinced with uh, with this Alpine team. So obviously, the hope is they'll have a great car for next season. He'll be back into the swing of things, hit the ground running and start at least challenging for the for the odd podium at the absolute minimum. And that they want to be winning races, really. So did you get any sign of, of how convinced Alonso is by the whole thing? Not really. And it's difficult to to, to read it because of the, the, the form is all over the place. It sometimes looks very good. It, you know, it um, sometimes looks sort of pitching in there with Ferrari and McLaren as best of the rest. And other, other times, like last weekend, it was just nowhere. Um, but that's a that's a tire trait thing, I think. And I think the the more accurate picture was probably the, the Barcelona Portemouth um, picture. So there's reason for encouragement, but whether he's convinced or not, I, I wouldn't really know. Um, but it's, yeah, re- realistically, to get a good run at the new, the new formula for 22, you need to be hoping that that team can at least be in there pitching for best of the rest um, for the, the balance of the season. Yeah, whereas as it is, they're, they're outside the top five now. Obviously, Aston Martin displaced them with that double points finish at Monaco, so that could be an interesting little battle. I think it looks like the battle for third and fourth is going to be an exclusively Ferrari-McLaren affair. It's not impossible that could change, but it seems fairly unlikely. So that's going to be an interesting little uh, battle in the, the lower reaches of the points off. And as you say, Ocon's performing... Uh, very very well so yeah overall five races it feels to me like we've kind of had the it's almost this is almost chapter one of the season isn't it they've had the they've had the five weekends to to get to a certain extent understand the challenges so I guess now we're into a stretch of races where you need to see those improvements happening and and, and consistency so yeah particularly for the ones who still have more to prove and and I think I'm inclined to agree with you Mark, that actually probably Ricardo, pound for pound, has probably been the least impressive, which is a surprise to say, given we know how good he is. But yeah, I'd probably be inclined to think that Ricardo versus what the car can do and expectations has probably been the the most disappointing. What what would you say, Scott? Would you agree on Ricardo? Um, it, the the way it's gone, the way it went in Monaco, kind of makes it very difficult to to argue against that. Um, but I think the point that I made before, which was that he was, he was actually doing a a very good job over the the first few weekends to disguise how much he's struggling and still turn out good results. Um, 
So I, I find that a little bit, a little bit difficult. I was just looking actually just to see, um, in terms of mileage, and I'm saying mileage, even though I'm looking at kilometers, but if you look at what they've done so far with five weekends in to the season, most nearly every driver's done basically between three and three and a half thousand kilometers of running over the first five Grand Prix weekends. Um, and if you look at, uh, if you look at say testing last year, uh, they'd have got someone like Ricardo, for example, got pretty much half that mileage just in preseason testing alone in 2020. So I think that I, I'm, I only look that up really just to get a frame of reference for just how costly the, um, the 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 redu- reduction in, in in testing would have been for for this year. You, you think we're probably we're judging these guys after the five races um, at a time when they they probably need another probably another full weekend, maybe even two full Grand Prix weekends to really get to to to, to where they might have been at this stage last last year. So it's really difficult. I, I, I still think that. Vettel, Vettel, Perez, and Alonso have shown a little bit less to me. I still, I think Sainz is, Sainz has clearly done the best job. Um, but yeah, just Perez because I just think he's been massively underperforming versus the car's potential in qualifying, and then Vettel and Alonso they've just been, they've basically just been fewer fewer peaks than Ricardo. Um, but I would say, I would counter that with where they are at the end of the fifth weekend specifically, Ricardo definitely looks the most lost. <laughs> so it's um it's a really complicated situation. And it shows just how much this this can change. We might get to the end of the Baku weekend and suddenly say, well Ricardo's cracked it, hasn't he? Look how good he's doing. I doubt we will. Well, the bottom line is they're all high caliber drivers. They'll they'll all get there to a greater or lesser extent. Two of them are world champions, four of them are Grand Prix winners and the one who isn't Carlos Sainz, I think there's no doubt he will go on to win Grand Prix soon enough, even if Monaco was one that eluded him. So I think it just shows you how difficult it is when it's all in these tiny, fine details, just how difficult it is in Formula 1 to be right at the top of your game. And it's going to be interesting to track them as the season progresses. Scott, just moving on to a slightly different topic, we should look ahead to Baku for the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Another street circuit, slightly different performance sensitivities to Monaco though. So what are you expecting heading into this weekend? Uh well I think um may who knows maybe that will come down to whether or not the likes of Red Bull and Co are brave enough to run their flexi rear wings and if we get a protest or or, or anything like this I mean I would uh I would expect Mercedes to be much more competitive than they were in 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 Monaco um I think uh, the 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 flip side of that is that it's an interesting um it's an interesting test of the energy recovery systems. We know that Mercedes has had a, a weakness there. So who knows? Maybe um maybe the all-round package of the the Honda power unit combined with um Red Bull's rear wing bending backwards massively down the straight to give them zero drag all the way through that flat out section. All right, so it's gonna give them a <laughs> is gonna give them a, a huge edge. But um in reality, I think it's gonna be exactly the same as we saw across the first four races. Monaco was the odd one out. Uh, where it's very difficult to to split them through practice and into qualifying, um, and I suspect we won't see a repeat of Ferrari suddenly in the pole fight either. Yeah, I think it's fairly clear that Ferrari's 
weakness is still the the power side and obviously that's going to come through at a circuit like uh, Baku how about you Mark what do you expect are you, are you willing to, to make one of your bold predictions like you did ahead of Monaco you got that spot on <laughs> um, I think McLaren is going to be very 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 strong in Baku um, I think it could it could even be in their pitching with the top two um, it's got very strong straight line speed and it's pretty good in Norris's hands in the slow speed and it's you know you've got the a very schizophrenic track layout there and a car which can cover both those bases as well as that I think is going to be right in the running the Ferrari will be dynamite in sector two and it'll be nowhere in sector <laughs> one and three. Oh yeah you'd expect them to fall back a little bit but yeah I think um, as for Red Bull versus Mercedes it's an interesting one because the Mercedes has clearly got uh, an edge on straight line speed in terms of um, drag uh, but as uh, Scott was alluding to, it's a test of the energy recovery and how long it can uh, keep on, um, uh, you know, d- delivering the, the power along that long Caspian Strait. And if there is any shortfall there, it, it starts to uh, sort of bleed away lap time. So, yeah, in theory, the Mercedes sh- should be a, a very nicely configured car for Baku. Well, but let's see and let's assume that it can... Uh, get the tyre temperatures there. It should, shouldn't be anything like as big a problem there as it was at Monaco. So, I, I, yeah, I, I don't see one or the other of them walking away with it, but uh, I, I do think McLaren or Lando Narros could be uh, right in the mix. It's one of the positive things about the gaps being tighter this year. It doesn't take such a such a big swing in terms of time for the competitive order to shift around a little bit. But I am, I'm interested, obviously, you both talked about the the Urs comparison, Mercedes versus Honda. And I think that could be a really interesting uh, battleground because, yeah, you do sort of lean towards thinking, well, could well be Mercedes territory, but actually that might just be enough to to swing it and make it uh, make it certainly much more interesting. And just as a final topic, Mark, uh, last week, former FIA president Max Mosley passed away. Controversial figure, but one who played an enormous role in shaping today's motorsport landscape. So how, how do you go about unravelling his complicated legacy? It's a difficult one, a hugely contradictory character, but let's give him his due. I think the biggest one has got to be his contribution to safety. He was relentless force in pushing that, even if he didn't initiate it. It was initiated sort of before he he really came to power, but then he trans- transferred that to the automotive industry as well through NCAP and, and the FIA's relationship with the automotive industry. And that was very much to do with him, very much his initiative. So he's he's probably saved countless numbers of lives. I think that's the the, the thing we've got to um, give him full credit for. He's a very uh, political man, wanted to be a politician, but essentially was unelectable because of his father, you know, the, the fascist Oswald Mosley, although he'd probably stand a chance today, ironically. Um, but it, his, his role as FIA president, and even before that, um, he was you know, hugely, hugely influential. And um, as working as Bernie Bernie Eccleston's ally against the governing body and then subsequently as head of the governing body, he, he was often, very, very often, in fact, I would say usually pushing for the right things. You could not only see the logic, but you could agree with the logic a lot of the time in, in, in terms of the end game he was trying to get to. But he was just as often going about it in a dictatorial and, and sometimes personally unpleasant way and could be quite vindictive. We just need to ask Ron Dennis about that. And he rubbed too many people up the wrong way and that's what lost him as power ultimately. But he was overall, I would say, a force for the good. 
Yeah, I think I'd, I'd agree with that. Certainly the way he did things wasn't always uh, the best. But certainly, you know, if you spoke to him on topics, he, he had a good command and a good understanding of it. He wasn't one of these people who was kind of making up or, or faking his, his knowledge. And there's, there's plenty of those around who will talk a very good game, but actually when you actually drill down to what they say, show they have very little understanding of what's what's going on. So yeah, it does come down to to where you stand perhaps on his way of doing things. But a figure whose who's influence in motorsport in particular will be felt for a, for a very, very long time. But it does, Scott, it feels like almost quite a long time ago now, that, that Mosley era, doesn't it? And it, it's a good chance to sort of consider how the whole landscape, particularly in F1 with the FIA, and the FOM side has changed enormously since those days, which were quite fractious at times. Yeah, I guess the um, the fact that um, Bernie was able to kick around for a bit longer sort of uh, just um, created that gap, I guess, where Mosley was. Um, I was going to say irrelevant. That's the wrong word. Obviously, he, he wasn't. He wasn't there. So, um, and for so long, like. Mosley and Eccleston were a double act, weren't they? For in in different forms and uh, in in sometimes controversial ways, and uh, certainly in ways that definitely helped one another. Um, but I I think in, I think as as time passes, I would like to think that his specific uh, sporting legacy, his role in what he did for Formula One motorsport, I think. That should only really be strengthened o- over time, um, and yeah, you can't, um, you shouldn't underestimate the value on the the the, the non motorsport side, the the automotive elements that Mark was talking about. So, um, I think, I think if you if you do separate the sort of the personal element, I know. It's difficult, if not impossible, to do that for for some people, and especially remove him from the sort of the, the the family element which obviously carried he carried he carried that with him for, for forever it, it was something he w- he could and would never escape um i i think you can if you judge him purely on his um merits uh in terms of what he achieved in formula 1 especially and with the FAA then you have to recognize the amount of influence that he had and also the 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 way he changed formula 1 ultimately for the better in in quite a quite a few ways very very significant ways as well yeah certainly one of the architects of of modern formula one you would you would have to say well thanks very much scott mitchell and mark hughes for your insight head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's huge amounts to read there and of course we'll be building up to the azerbaijan grand prix weekend check out our sister podcasts including bring back v10s and the race indycar podcast as well which will be bringing you indianapolis 500 coverage jr hildebrand of course uh, hosts that podcast along with the race's own jack Bennion. check out youtube as well if you like videos just search for the race thanks for listening we're now going to turn our attention to the azerbaijan grand prix and we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from baku